Hello. Thank you for joining us in our study of Jeremiah. We've had a really good study so far, and I've really appreciated the opportunity to go back and forth with Matt Dow every other week and to go through this book. I certainly appreciated some of the points that he brought out last week. If you haven't had a chance, I'd encourage you to go to godsredeemed.org and then go to the Sermons and the Classes tab and uh, look up Matt's class from last week. really provided a lot of context around what Jeremiah is going through. As his prophetic ministry extends and as he's placed under further pressures, uh, some of the layers are peeled back and we get to see what Jeremiah as a person is dealing with. And I think it really helps to provide a lot of color uh, to the message that he's been providing to God's people. But I really enjoyed the study. Uh, tonight we are going to be studying chapters 21, 22, 23, and 24. Um, and uh, looking forward to di uh, diving into those with you. Uh, one more thing, uh, talk to some people that don't know that this is also available on a podcast format. Uh, so, of course, you can watch the videos, but if you prefer to listen on the podcasts, uh, you can access those by just going to whatever podcast app you use. I know it's available on the, uh, the Apple podcast app, and just search for Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ. Uh, but whether you listen or whether you watch, we're glad that you're joining us. We hope that you're getting something useful and edifying out of our study of Jeremiah. So we're going to be starting tonight with chapter 21. Uh, so for a little bit of context, we are now leaving the time period of Josiah. Uh, those first 20 chapters, it appears for the most part, all took place during the reign of Josiah. And as we talked about uh, at great length, this was a time of outward reform, where you had a strong leader at the top, you had someone who cared about God, who cared about serving God, and was doing his best to encourage the people to do so. Now, we know that the people did not fully adhere to those reforms. They didn't fully take to them. That was one of the things that Jeremiah has been bringing out time and time again, that there are those that are outwardly turning, but yet they're still serving idols. Well, now we are going into a period of time where the leadership, at least extensively, is going to match the people. And tonight's lesson, I think, uh, specifically, you'll notice this theme. I think it runs throughout all four chapters that the leaders are called out for their failings. Uh, there are, of course, some other things that we'll dig into, but it seems that each of these chapters really hone in on the leadership um, and the areas that they have failed the people. And, and they have failed the people because they have failed God. They have failed to obey Him. Uh, so again, if you remember, as we've discussed before, after Josiah, we're going to go through four kings, uh, two rather quickly. Um, but after Josiah dies... Uh, in the Battle of Megiddo against Pharaoh Necho, you have Jehoahaz, who takes the throne, but only for a very short period of time. Uh, Jehoahaz, also known as Shalom, and Pharaoh Necho takes him away to Egypt, and he puts in place Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is going to reign for 11 years. He's incredibly wicked and incredibly cruel. Uh, we actually have record of him putting to death prophets. So Jehoiakim is going to reign for 11 years. Then you're going to have Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin is going to have another very short period of time on the throne, just two or three months, before he's going to be taken away, but not to Egypt. He's going to be taken away to Babylon with that second uh, wave of captives there. And then you're going to have Zedekiah. And Zedekiah is the last king. He's really just a, a vassal. Um, he's a vassal of Babylon, but he's extremely weak, uh, not righteous by any means, uh, not overly cruel to Jeremiah specifically, uh, 
probably better to characterize him as just weak. He, he vacillates back and forth and can't seem to take a stand one or the other. But these are the four kings that we're going to be dealing with throughout uh, the, the rest of the book of Jeremiah. So let's go to chapter 21. If you've got your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open up. And this gives, us, uh, this gives us a good idea of where we are. It tells us right from the start, Jeremiah chapter 21, that this is in the latter days of Zedekiah. So we've gone all the way to the end. Uh, so, you know, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and then Zedekiah. We are now in Zedekiah. So we're uh, right there in those last several years before Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Um, and we have here a situation in the beginning of chapter 21 where Zedekiah is sending individuals. Uh, interestingly enough, he sends Pasher, who we studied about uh, last week in Matt's class. Pasher was one of these individuals that put Jeremiah in the stocks. So now Zedekiah is sending Pasher uh, and these other individuals to Jeremiah to inquire of the Lord. Um, and he's asking him there in verse 2, Inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, makes war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all of his wonderful works. It seems like a little bit of a strange request, but uh, I would encourage you to go and look at Jeremiah chapter 37. In Jeremiah chapter 37, uh, we see a very, very similar situation. Uh, it could be describing the same situation. Uh, I'm a little more inclined to believe that the events of chapter 37 actually happened before what we're reading here in 21. What it sounds like is in chapter 37, the Babylonian armies have started to come and at least initially started the siege against Jerusalem. Well, then Egypt, these Egyptian forces come up. And when the Egyptian forces come up, the Babylonian forces flee. Uh, and as this situation plays out, there's an interaction between Zedekiah and Jeremiah. And Jeremiah tells Zedekiah at that point in time, this is not over. God is still going to punish you. Um, in fact, if you, if you look over, there's, there's a, just a powerful line in Jeremiah chapter 37. Jeremiah 37 and uh, verse 9. Thus says the Lord, Do not deceive yourselves, saying the Chaldeans will surely depart from us, for they will not depart. Verse 10. For though you had defeated the whole army of the Chaldeans who fight against you, and there remained only wounded men among them, they would rise up, every man in his tent, and burn this city with fire. So Jeremiah is telling him in chapter 37, this is, this is not over. So again, this could be the same situation, but I'm actually inclined to believe that this had happened a little bit earlier. The Chaldeans had fled, and now Zedekiah is wondering here in 21, is the same thing going to happen again? And Jeremiah is going to give him the same message uh, that he told him before is that this is not over. Uh, he, he tells them uh, there in verse 4, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands with which you fight against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who besiege you outside the walls. I will assemble them in the midst of the city and I myself will fight against you. Jeremiah is making it very clear it is God's will that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by the Babylonians. That, that they are going to be punished. And he is not mincing words. He's very consistent with Zedekiah. As we're going to see later, he may be one of the lone voices that is proclaiming this truth. All the other prophets are saying, don't worry, there's going to be peace, you're going to be okay. But he's telling them, no, it is God's will. God is saying, both here and in 37, it's incredibly telling, in chapter 37, he said, even if you were to defeat 
the army of the Chaldeans, all those wounded men would rise up and would still burn the city. And God says here in 21, I myself am fighting against you. I'm in opposition. You are going to be judged for your wickedness and your unfaithfulness. Uh, when you think about this request, it, it just struck me to look at, I guess, what's not here. And I couldn't help but draw a comparison to go back to Hezekiah. When you think some years back in Judah's history, when the, the Assyrians and Sennacherib were coming and they were besieging Jerusalem, and you have Hezekiah pouring his heart out before the Lord, addressing God as the Almighty One. And just the difference between those prayers, the prayers of a righteous, faithful individual that was going to God because he knew that God had the power to save and the power to protect. And I just get the impression here when you look at Zedekiah coming, uh, even just the way, and I don't want to read too much into the words, but he says there in, in verse 2, perhaps the Lord will deal with us. It's almost like, well, you know, we, we've exhausted all of our other resources. Maybe this God will help us out. I guess you could maybe give him credit for going to the right source. At least he is going to the one true God, but he's not approaching God in the right manner. And I think there's a lesson there for us as well. It, it, is, it is no better to go to God in this manner than it is to go to an idol. Um, when we approach God in this manner without any humility, uh, there's nothing here about any desire to repent. There's nothing here about any desire to obey the word of the Lord. There's nothing about, there's nothing anything. It's just maybe, maybe this God will help us out. Guys, go run and go run and check with Jeremiah and see if God's going to help us out this time. And, and that's not the way that our relationship with God works. God desires humility. God desires obedience. He desires an ongoing, lasting relationship with us. We don't just go to God when we need him for something, like it's a, like it's a light switch that we can turn off and on. And I think that should be a good reminder for us. Um, th there are certainly times that we are in, in deep distress, and maybe we go to God more often than others, but we, we don't need to forsake that. We need to develop a deep and a lasting relationship with God like Hezekiah had so that we can go to him in times of distress. And when we pray, we can pray confidently. We can pray confidently knowing that God loves us and desires to take care of us, and that his will for us is what is best, not this, this haphazard request. But I'm afraid there are far too many individuals that treat God like that, like he's some kind of talisman or lucky charm, that when things get bad, we can go to him. Uh, you know, it kind of reminds me of the the quintessential uh, scene where you got the guy in the bar and he says, God, if there is a God, help me with this. That, that's, that's no, that's probably the furthest thing from a prayer of faith. And I think we can see that their end result matches up with the request. And that's not the kind of relationship that we should have with God. That's not the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. But he tells them here that the, the people have a choice. Uh, if you look in verses 8 through 10, Now you shall say to this people, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Sound familiar? Reminds me a little bit of the words there in Deuteronomy. He's not mincing words. You've got two choices. One leads to life. One leads to death. In this scenario, if you stay in the city, it's going to be death. Sword, pestilence, siege, destruction, fire. Or, 
And again, we're at the very, very end. He says, or you can turn yourselves over to Babylon. He's telling them here, it is my will that you go into captivity. I will protect you and I will bring back a remnant. So life is turning yourselves over to Babylon. Death is staying here in the city. Very, very clear. But yet so many would not trust in God. They would not place their trust in God. They wanted to remain in the city. And Zedekiah was too weak to make any kind of a decision. And he was not the example that he needed to be. As we go on throughout the rest of chapter 21, we now have this message uh, that's to the royal family. This is to the house of David. And we're going to see this uh, message, at least elements of this message, repeated in the next couple of chapters. But there's a call here. Verse 12, O house of David, thus says the Lord, execute judgment in the morning. When you think about doing something in the morning, what does that, what does that call to mind for you? When I was thinking about this, I was trying to think, okay, well, why would you, why would you say to do justice in the morning? Is that the only time that justice needs to be, uh, needs to be meted out? Well, no, you know, justice needs to be all throughout our day. But when I think about the morning, what I really thought of was it was the first thing that happened. It was that important. It was that important that when you woke up, the very first thing on your to-do list was justice. Um, sometimes when we wake up, we've got the things that start running through our mind. We think, okay, I, I really need to tackle this. I need to get this done before the kids wake up. I need to get this done before I head off to work. I need to get this done before whatever fill in the blank is. Justice had fallen so low on their priority list that they needed to reestablish their priorities. And this is a call to the house of David, to the royal family, to say, listen, you have, you have failed. You have failed the people. You need to execute justice in the morning. First thing, it needs to be the top priority. Justice, fairness, fairness for all, equality for all. We're going to see this message uh, later on that the, the princes in the royal family have been exploiting the people, not serving the people, not leading the people. You even see some elements of that here uh, as it goes on in verse 12. Deliver him who is plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. And they have not been doing that. As leaders, they have failed the people. One of the most basic aspects of being a leader is reaching out and helping those that are weak, those that cannot take care of themselves, not exploiting them, not plundering them. And God is a God who loves justice. You think about some of the other passages throughout the prophets where God comes to the people and he talks about how he hates unjust scales. Well, does God really hate a scale that isn't weighted the right way? No, it's the principle. It's the idea that one man would rig scales in some sort of a barter system to take advantage of somebody else. That idea is abhorrent to God. He hates that his creation would seek to take advantage of somebody else. Love God, love other people. And when we have these kind of attitudes where you're plundering and taking advantage of others, we are not fulfilling the command to love others, to love our neighbor as ourself. And if we're not going to love our brother, and if we're not going to love our neighbor as ourself, then we cannot love God with our hearts all in mind. Those two things are, are intricately connected. And the leaders had abandoned that responsibility to the people. But we're going to see more on that as we go into chapter 22. Now, chapter 22, we're going to be in a different time period. Uh, it seems here, as we go on to chapter 22, that this is actually during the reign of Jehoiakim. 
Uh, so we're actually backing, we're backing up in time. Chapter 21, we were very, very near the end, close to the destruction of Jerusalem. Babylon, Babylon had started that siege there. Now we're back up to Jehoiakim. Uh, so probably you know, anywhere from uh, 11 to 15 years prior to this, we're going to see a very, very similar message. Uh, chapter 22, verse 1, same audience. Go down to the house of the king of Judah and there speak this word. And tell him, verse 3, execute judgment and righteousness. Deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. If you indeed do this thing, then shall enter the gates of this house riding on horses and chariots accompanied by servants and people, kings who sit on the throne of David. It's amazing how sometimes just doing the simple things is what God asks of us. Just the simple things, as we just mentioned, loving God and loving our neighbor as ourself. But, but those things are going to manifest themselves in, in, in myriads of different ways. And it's sad that the people had abandoned this. Uh, the people were taking advantage of, of, them, of each other. And the royal family, the line of David, they were taking advantage of the people. Um, if you would, I thought of, this, thought of this other verse in the 89th Psalm. It's just interesting to me to look at this psalm, Psalm of David, the 89th Psalm, and look with me really quick there in verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Righteousness and justice. What is God asking them to do here in verse 3? Execute justice, judgment, and righteousness. If justice and righteousness were the foundation of God's throne, they surely should be the foundation of anyone who would sit on an earthly throne and rule over God's people. We should be seeking to emulate the one that we serve. But yet they had gotten so far from it. And the sad state is, is further carried out in these next couple of verses. Uh, we've seen this several times, verses 6 through 9. God telling the people, Listen, you are so precious to me. You are my special covenant people. I don't want to do what I'm going to have to do. But unlike these rulers who had abandoned justice and who had abandoned righteousness, God can't. Those are essential aspects of his character. God is anything, uh, you know, if he's anything, he's just. That's why there had to be, uh, when we think about the sacrifice of Christ, there had to be a sacrifice for sins to, to satisfy the justice, to pay the price that needed to be paid. God is justice. God is righteousness. And he's bringing that message to them now that you were special to me. You are my own special covenant people. He describes them in verse 6 as these beautiful cedars of Lebanon, these tall, magnificent trees. If you remember when they were building the temple, they went up to Lebanon to have these cedars brought down. World-renowned cedars of Lebanon. Tall, mighty, beautiful trees. But God says there in verse 7, I will prepare destroyers against you, every one with his weapons, and they shall cut down your choice cedars and cast them into the fire. That is the, that, that's what's going to have to happen to the people. But God takes, God takes no pleasure in it. Well, now he moves on from this, this general condemnation of the leaders to actually talking specifically about the individual leaders. When you come down, verse 10, 
kind of lays out some instructions. He says, weep not for the dead, nor bemoan him. Weep bitterly for him who goes away, for he shall return no more, nor see his native country. He's basically saying, don't weep for those that have died. Think about Josiah. You know, don't mourn Josiah. Uh, Josiah is actually in a far better state than some of these kings that are now sitting on his throne. Uh, specifically going to talk about uh, Shalom, Jehoahaz. Uh, Jehoahaz is one who taken away into Egyptian captivity. It says there, thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah's father, he shall not return here anymore, but he will die in the place where they have led him captive. So Josiah, who has passed away and is dead, is in a far better place than his son, Jehoahaz, who is taken into Egyptian captivity and is going to die there. Then we go on to start talking about Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim, there's several verses here dedicated to him. Uh, you think about the situation. So Jehoahaz taken away by Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim is placed in power by Pharaoh Necho. And these taxes are, uh, are, are weighed upon the people. So if you're a normal person and your people are under deep economic distress, what would you do to try to show any kind of sympathy or empathy with them? Well, you wouldn't build a giant, huge palace and not pay the individuals that worked on it. But that's exactly what Jehoiakim did. As we read in these verses, uh, he built this magnificent palace, verse 14, a wide house with spacious chambers and cut out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion, uh, a, a, reddish, a reddish paint. So the question is asked in verse 15, shall you reign because you enclose yourself in cedar? So you've built this giant house for yourself. You haven't paid the workers that built it for you, all while levying huge taxes on the people. What, what kind of leader are you? Do you think that you're some kind of big leader because you live in a big house? And the answer is no. You are just another in these line of leaders that has failed the people because you focused on some kind of physical spectacle, this palace, this giant house to live in, and you didn't focus on the spiritual health, the spiritual health of yourself or the spiritual health of your people. And so the end result is quite sad. The end result is told to us in verse 18 that they're not going to lament for you when you pass away. Uh, verse 18, they shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, my brother, or alas, my sister. They will not say, Alas, master, or alas, his glory. Verse 19, he will be buried with the burial of a donkey, dragged and cast out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Pretty harsh words for Jehoiakim, but this is the fate that is going to meet somebody who selfishly only looked to his own pleasure. He was not a true leader. A true leader cared about the people. A true leader served the people. Definitely not something that Jehoiakim did. Um, when you go down this, uh, this last section, verses 24 through verse 30, 24 through verse 30 are now prophesying about Jeconiah. Um, or Jehoiachin. So this prophesies that he and his family are going to be taken captive and are not going to return. Uh, and we can go to 2 Kings chapter 24 and verse 12 and see that this prophecy is going to be fulfilled. It mentions that Jehoiachin, his mother, Nehushta, and his family are all taken into Babylonian captivity. Um, now it is interesting that it mentions here uh, in verse 30, it says, Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days. For none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. 
Well, it's interesting because, you know, it's mentioning that you're going to write this man down as childless. But in verse 28, it says, why are they cast out, he and his descendants? So just a few verses earlier, it acknowledges that uh, Kaniah, Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, all the, all the same individual here, he's going to have descendants. Um, and we can actually read further on exactly who his descendants are. He is going to be a link in that messianic chain from David all the way to Jesus. When we go to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 12, we see that in Babylonian captivity, uh, Jeconiah has a son, Shealtiel, and Shealtiel is the father of Zerubbabel. And so when the remnant comes back, Zerubbabel is the governor. He is the one that is uh, allowed to rule over this remnant of Judah that returns to rebuild Jerusalem. So what we see here, though, is not that uh, not that Jehoiachin is not going to have any children at all. What we're talking about here is the end of this Davidic line of kings that are going to rule on a throne in Jerusalem. Uh, we've already mentioned before that many of the people didn't even view Zedekiah, who would come after Jehoiachin, as, as the true king. He was essentially put in place by Babylon. And it's important to note that Zedekiah would not be a son of Jehoiachin. He was actually his uncle. So no child of Jehoiachin was going to reign on the throne. And in fact, Jehoiachin only reigned for two to three months. Um, no one else was going to reign on the throne again. You have Zedekiah who reigns as this vassal of Babylon. Then the city is destroyed. And even when the people come back, Zerubbabel is just a governor. He is operating under the Babylonian rule. Um, even when these nations go away, Judah is never again what they are right now. Even with all the geopolitical things going on right now, there is a king reigning on the throne, someone from the seed of David. They are an independent nation. But the sad, sad thing about this prophecy is that that is coming to an end. Because of their unfaithfulness, because of their lack of humility and obedience to the Lord, they will not have a king to reign on the throne in physical Jerusalem anymore. They will cease to exist as this independent nation. Uh, even when you go all throughout history, um, when you come to where we are in the New Testament, where are they? Under Roman rule. They have some success uh, rebelling against the, 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 Greek, the Greek nations, but they're, they're, never, they're never the independent nation that they were again with a king ruling on the throne. And this, this is a sad prophecy. It's sad to see the, the unified nation that we saw under David, that we saw even under Solomon, and what they are now, where they split, and now they've grown smaller and smaller and smaller, and maybe even more sad, they've grown further and further and further away from God. That's what this is talking about right now. But we do know that that does not nullify God's promise to David because that promise is ultimately fulfilled in the Messiah, in Christ, the one who will rule forever and ever. And even you can go to some of those post-exilic prophets, uh, Haggai comes to mind. I believe those last couple of verses of Haggai speaking to Zerubbabel, uh, talking about in that day, I will make you like a signet ring. Now, what's he talking to, what's he talking to uh, Zerubbabel about? He is talking about that future day, comparing him to that messianic king, the king that is going to rule and rule forever, and not rule over an earthly kingdom, but rule over a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom that is going to be greater than all kingdoms, as Daniel had prophesied, a kingdom that would crush 
the other kingdoms and, and rule forever. That's the ultimate fulfillment of, of that promise, that the seed of David, as uh, Romans talks about, that seed of David, the Messiah, is going to rule forever. But uh, nonetheless, a, a sad passage here to think about this line of kings essentially coming to an end. Not an end to the line that's going to go to the Messiah, but nonetheless, uh, an end to the line of those that are going to rule over an independent Judah. Well, let's hear, now let's go on to Jeremiah chapter 23. We've been talking about the Messiah, and here we have some more uh, language about the Messiah. Um, this is something that is, is brought out and it reminded me a lot of Ezekiel. We studied Ezekiel, I think it was probably last year, we studied Ezekiel. But there was several chapters in Ezekiel that compared the failings of the physical leaders, the physical shepherds, versus the one true shepherd, the Messiah, that God was going to bring to lead his people. And how the leaders that were there had failed them time and time again, but this one that was coming would not fail them. He would be perfect in every way. And that's the language that we see here in chapter 23. It starts off 23 verse 1, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. Um, but what are we going to see? Verse 3, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper, execute judgment and righteousness. There's again that justice and righteousness that we were talking about in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. It's interesting to me that we were just talking in the prior chapters about those mighty cedars of Lebanon that were going to be cut down by Babylon. That battle axe of Babylon was going to come and chop down the mighty precious cedar that was Jerusalem and Judah. But even though that cedar is going to be cut down, here we see God saying, in that day, there's going to be a branch. There's going to be a branch that will plant and take root and rise up to be a king greater than any king that you've ever had. This is going to be a king who is going to reign and prosper, something that's going to be foreign to these individuals. You think about the folks that Jeremiah is talking to, it's probably been some years since they've seen prospering. Uh, even going all the way back uh, to, uh, to Josiah. Josiah was the last one where they really prospered. Uh, these 22, 23 years leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, they're paying tribute to different nations. They've got kings turning over. They're not prospering. But a king is going to come that is going to reign and prosper, and integral to his character is justice and righteousness. The two very things that he is admonishing the kings of this time to do that they are sorely needing. But this king will do it. And in those days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. And we know that the one who is going to fulfill this is the Messiah. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, he's going to come in the fullness of time. He's going to be a seed of David. And as 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10 tells us, he is going to be the one that is going to bring true life. You could spend a lot of time uh, talking here, and I really encourage you, to spend some time reading through these verses. Um, we're going to have a chance to touch on this idea again uh, because we're going to see some of these themes come up in chapter 31 and chapter 33. Chapter 33 is going to speak again about this branch, looking forward to that wonderful day of the Messiah. Um, 
But again, I just want to come back to this idea of the sharp contrast. You have this one, this branch, that is going to be full of justice and righteousness. In fact, his name is going to be, in verse 6, the Lord our righteousness. This is such an essential part of his character that it's his name. It's like as if if Brian described some aspect of who I was. That whenever you thought of Brian, yeah, that's a Brian. That's who this name is. Righteousness is so integral to his character that his name is righteousness. What an amazing contrast to what we see. And I just keep going back to Jehoiakim. You've got this wicked, selfish individual that's imposing taxes on all of his people. And while he's imposing taxes on them, he's getting free labor to build himself a cedar-lined palace. Now compare that picture to this Messiah, who's going to execute justice and righteousness, whose name is righteousness, and is who is going to deliver the people and allow them to live in safety. That is truly a wonderful day, and something that if you if you can't imagine, if there are individuals who are seeking, if there are individuals who, who are listening to Jeremiah and who are looking for a little bit of hope, this is the hope. This is the hope that they can grasp onto. Uh, the rest of the chapter, uh, chapter 23, verses 9, really through the end, 9 through 40, are all talking about the false prophets. Prophets should have been leaders. They should have been the ones that have been acting as mouthpieces of God. Now, we're not going to take the time to really go verse by verse through here. I just want to point out a couple. Um, the, uh, look at verse 11. I'm going to point out a couple very quickly uh, words that describe these false prophets. Verse 11 says that they were profane. Profane is the opposite of holy. If you can think of any job characteristic for a prophet, it should have been holy. But they were profane. They were the opposite of holy. Verse 14 says they were adulterous and lying. Verse 16 says they were not to be listened to. Verse 21 says they were not from God. Again, basic job description for a prophet is to be the mouthpiece of God. But yet they're profane and they're not from God. And sadly, verse 27, they even substituted Baal for God. We've talked time and time again about how Jeremiah is the one that is trying to bring this message to the people as much as it pains him, as much as it hurts him, as much as it leads him to be hurt. Think about Matt's class last week where he's putting the stocks for what he's doing, for what he's saying. He is trying to bring the truth no matter how much the truth hurts because he wants souls to turn to God in repentance. These other prophets are saying, peace, peace, they're lying, they're claiming to be from God, and really they're not from God. They had an opportunity to help. They had an opportunity to back up what Jeremiah was saying. They had an opportunity to turn the hearts and the minds of the people, but they weren't willing to take it. They weren't willing to take that that tough road, and instead they prophesied, peace, 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 everything's going to be okay, everything's going to be great. And, and God says, I've rejected you. You are not from me. Uh, verse 39 and verse 40 summarize his response to these prophets. Therefore, behold, I, even I, will utterly forget you and forsake you. And the city that I gave you and your fathers will cast you out of my presence. And I will bring an everlasting reproach upon you and a perpetual shame which shall not be forgotten. A perpetual shame. A shame forever. It won't be forgotten. That is the punishment for these prophets that claimed to be from God, 
but they were really just spreading lies. It's a sad, a sad condemnation indeed of individuals that should have been holy, that should have been preaching God's word, but they were not. Well, let's finish up with chapter 24. Chapter 24 is the last one that we're going to study tonight. And again, our time period is given to us. Uh, in verse 1, it says that this is after Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, the craftsmen, the smiths, Jerusalem, and brought them to Babylon. This is going to be that second wave of captives. So Jehoiachin, Coniah, Jeconiah, um, he was taken away. And that was with that second wave. So this whole group of individuals, it mentions craftsmen, smiths. Um, Nebuchadnezzar probably took all these individuals to do building projects for him. But all these individuals were taken away in this second wave of captives. But we see a vision here. Uh, God shows him these two baskets of figs. And uh, one basket has very good figs. Verse 2 describes them figs that are first ripe. So these probably would have been sweet. It would have been good to taste. And there's another basket has very bad figs. It says they're so bad they couldn't be eaten. And Jeremiah describes this to the Lord. I see the good figs and I see the bad figs. And God tells him exactly what this means. Uh, verse 5, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, whom I have sent out of this place for their own good into the land of the Chaldeans. So there's individuals that were carried away captive. God's describing them as the good figs. So individuals uh, like Daniel, um, individuals like Ezekiel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, individuals that have been carried away captive, God is symbolizing them with these good figs. And he says in verse 6, I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. So again, we're talking about this remnant. These individuals that are taken away, they are not going to stay in captivity forever. He is prophesying here that this basket of good figs, these individuals that have been taken away captive, they are going to be allowed to come back to the land. But even better than coming back to the land is verse 7. He says, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people. I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. So that's good news. We're talking about not only a return to the land, but a return to the Lord. That's this classification of the, this first basket, the good figs. These are the ones that are taken away. Again, the Daniels, the Ezekiels. These are the people they are going to be allowed to, to come back. And not only come back to the land, they're going to be able to come back into a right relationship with God. And you see those two things intertwined, that symbolism there, coming back to the land, rebuilding. We talk about this a lot with some of those post-exilic prophets. But there was this connection between rebuilding the walls rebuilding the temple, and rebuilding the relationship with God. That's why when you have individuals like Haggai that are encouraging them to get back to work, it's because there's this connection. You are literally rebuilding, yes, the physical walls, and you are rebuilding the temple brick by brick, but you're also rebuilding and repairing your relationship with God. And when you let one go, you are letting the other go. And God here is prophesying of a time when this remnant is going to be able to rebuild that relationship. There's also a second basket. The second basket, the bad figs, the figs that you were not able to eat, these are going to represent individuals that are not going to go into captivity. And he calls by name in verse 8, So will I give up Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his princes, the residue of Jerusalem. Residue, I always think of something nasty that's left over. That's how he's describing these people. 
They're the residue. They're the leftovers. And he says, I am going to give them up to, uh, he also mentions too, really quick, those who dwell in the land of Egypt. That's an interesting note because there were some individuals that instead of listening to Jeremiah and going into Babylonian captivity thought they could take refuge in Egypt. Interesting here that God calls them out as well. Um, but verse 9, I will deliver them to trouble into all the kingdoms of the earth. Their harm to be a reproach and a byword, a taunt and a curse in all places where I drive them. And again, what's waiting for them, verse 10, the sword, the famine, the pestilence, until they are consumed from the land. So we have these two individuals, or these two groups. The first group is going to go into captivity. They're going to be allowed to return. And most importantly, they're going to return to God in that second group. That is going to stay and unfortunately meet with the terrible end. Hope you've enjoyed the study tonight. Uh, enjoyed this time with you. And again, I'd encourage you, if you have any questions, please feel free to send them to myself or send them to Matt. And uh, again, go to the website. We've got lots of great resources. Uh, Godsredeemed.org. We've got singings. We've got sermons. We've got classes. Also available on podcast. Hope you have a good week.